Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to preach so this just wouldn't be me yapping up here, um, but that, Lord, uh, together as your sanctuary, we would uh, be filled with your very self, the living word, and that you would transform us and make us into the people that you want us to be and cause, Lord, our lives to be an offering sent back up to you as praise and worship and everything that we do. Help us, Lord God, to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Caesarea Philippi is north of Galilee at the base of Mount Hermon. It was an extremely pagan city. It's at the edge of what's now uh, Syria. For ages, it was known as Baal Gad or Baal Hermon because it was a center for the worship of the Syrian fertility god, Baal. Uh, in Greco-Roman times, it became known as Panyas or Banyas because it became a center for the fertility, worship of the fertility god, Pan, the goat man. From this cave issued a spring which fed the Jordan River and the pagans believed that their gods descended through that cave into Hades during winter and ascended out of the cave in, in spring. This was known as the Gates of Hades, or translated into English, the Gates of Hell. This is me preaching at the Gates of Hell. Is that impressive? I'm, not, I'm like not even scared. <laughs> in Jesus' day, Panyas had been renamed Caesarea Philippi in honor of King Herod's son, Philip, and Caesar Augustus, who had a temple built there because people worshiped Augustus at this location as well. So here at the gates of hell, pagans sacrificed to Roman and Syrian idols, copulated with goats, it's, it's said, and worshiped political leaders as gods. It was the edge of the Gentile world, the edge of Syria, the edge of hell. Which reminds me of the video that we watched last week when we prayed for the persecuted church. Remember? We were praying for revival, believing God would do a big work in Syria. Then the war came. Now the terrorists are attacking Christian homes churches, and even our children. Their goal is to empty Syria of its Christians. We hate the spirit of Islam that is destroying our country, but we love our Muslim neighbors. They come to us and say, in the name of our God, terrorists rape and kill, where is God? We tell them about Jesus, and many are coming to know him. Still others say, we are like living in hell. We're like living in hell. And biblically, that's a regular accurate statement because in scripture, Hades begins on the surface of the earth and continues after death underground, under the earth, in the grave. So who on earth and how on earth could anyone prevail against the gates of hell? That's a, that's a good question. Well, anyway, Jesus takes the 12 disciples to Caesarea Philippi to ask them this question. Who do people say 
the Son of Man is. Now, do you know what Son of Man means? Anyone? It means son of man, like your dad's a man. It means like being a man. And, and it's just used that way throughout the, the Old Testament. Man and son of man, blah, blah, blah. Until you get to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. About 490 years before Christ, uh, Daniel has a vision of this son of man who receives this eternal kingdom from the ancient of days and it consists of all peoples. It's like a rock in Daniel chapter two that strikes the kingdoms of this world and then grows until it fills the entire earth. And Daniel seems to be told in Daniel nine that the son of man will conquer in 70 weeks of years. That's 490 years, which works out to be about 33 AD. The early church taught that the Son of Man came with his kingdom in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But most modern American Christians say, well, it obviously didn't happen because we didn't see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory and his kingdom. So the 70th week of years must skip like 2,000 years and all of our end times books are, are still valid. Well, anyway, if you didn't understand all of that, just know that as Jesus asked this question, Standing at the gates of hell, people were anticipating the coming of the Christ, the Son of God. So Son of Man means a man, but it may also mean Son of God, Messiah. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus has been referring to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? See, Jesus doesn't wanna know what Bible scholars and political leaders say about him. He wants to know what you say about him or who you say that he, he is. You know, the answer doesn't come from a book or a, or a tract. Jesus has been with these guys a few years by now. He could have just said at the very start, hey guys, let's cut to the chase. I'm the Messiah. <laughs> there you go. But instead, he lived with them, loved them, touched lepers, blessed little children, and then after a few years, he said, now, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That is your man and your God. You're the revelation of God and the revelation of men. You're the God man, the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, if you confess Jesus is the Christ, you have heard the voice of your Father in heaven. You may have thought it was your idea. In fact, you probably did. You may have thought it was your idea, your word, but it was God's idea in your heart and his word on your tongue. And that means faith is not your own creation. Faith is something that God has created in you by grace. In John 15, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It's your faith, because God gave it to you, but as soon as you think you are the author and the finisher of your faith, it's not faith, but a lie from hell. The son 
reveals the Father, and the Father reveals the Son. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So bingo, Yahtzee, jackpot. Peter's answer is correct. And according to Roman Catholics, it's here that Jesus makes Peter the, the first pope. Whatever the case, it does seem that Jesus makes Peter the head of the church. Now, Peter is Greek for Rocky, the name Rocky. And so what Jesus says is, you're Rocky, and on this rock, I will build my church. So Peter's thinking, dang, I'm the Messiah's wingman, <laughs> and we're going to rock this world. We're going to build the church. How do you do that? Well, Jesus has just fed four or 5,000 people, remember, by making, getting people in groups and making bread. So first, Peter must be thinking, we'll build the church by providing bread. All sorts of people argue that to build the church, we must turn stones into bread. In other words, we must be relevant. And Jesus had just done some spectacular miracles. And so secondly, Peter has got to be thinking to himself, hey, we've got to do that walking on water thing again. And when we get to Jerusalem, oh, we could throw ourselves down from the temple and the angels would like catch us and pick us up and everybody would see it. And who wouldn't want to join a church like that? You know, there are all sorts of people that argue if you want to grow a church, you need to be spectacular. You need spectacle. You need signs and wonders. And if you can't work the signs and the wonders, at least get a great band and a nice building and some stained glass. And Jesus has just revealed he's the Messiah, the king. And they're going up to Jerusalem. You know, the roads into Jerusalem in that day were often lined with crosses on which hung the bodies of Jewish dissidents who, who were being, their corpses being eaten by birds and issuing a warning to anyone that would oppose the power of Rome. You do know that ISIS did not invent crucifixion, right? That was the Romans. The Romans make ISIS look like a pack of schoolgirls. Well, there are all sorts of people that would argue, if you want to grow the church, you need political power and an army, the strongest army, in order to kill the killers, in order to terrorize the terrorists, in order to crucify the crucifiers. Well, Peter has got to be thinking we need relevant spectacle and third, power. And Jesus has just said that he would give Peter something. He would give him these keys. In chapter 18, Jesus appears to give them to the other disciples as well. It appears that they have something to do with church discipline and the proclamation of forgiveness. Jesus says quite literally, whatever you bind on earth will be having been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be having been loosed in heaven. And Jesus has made it clear. You refuse to loose people of their sins. That is, you refuse to forgive and you won't be forgiven. That's the unforgivable sin, remember? Refusing to forgive. Well, it's like Peter and the 12 are to be the cutting edge of the kingdom of relentless and eternal grace by the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. But of course, at this point, Peter really doesn't understand any all of of that. I mean, he just understands that he's the Messiah's wingman. 
And they're going to bust down the gates of Rome and Syria and Jerusalem and even hell. Why? Because he just found out Jesus, his buddy, is the Christ. (laughs) So go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ, Messiah, is born. Next verse. Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. (laughs) Shut up. Strictly charged them. Guys, no bumper stickers, no t-shirts, no tracks. I want you to keep this quiet. Don't you dare tell. You know, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, going therefore, disciple all nations. But for most of the gospel and the synoptic gospels, Jesus tells people to shut up more than speak up, with a few notable exceptions. He doesn't say it to the Roman centurion. He doesn't say to the pagan Syrophoenician woman. And he actually tells one guy to go and tell everybody in his country. He's the very first evangelist. Do you remember who that is? We talked about it, the, the, the demoniac, the garrison demoniac. Jesus tells him to go back and tell, you got it, tell all his countrymen in the Decapolis about what Jesus has done and, and who he is. He sends the Gadarene demoniac. And John, the Samaritan woman, is the first evangelist who's on her seventh husband. And he sends her back and she tells everybody in her village in Samaria. And of course, the shepherds tell, but they weren't told to tell. And the shepherds were like the redneck scumbags of, of Israel. They were the poor and the powerless. And yet to religious Jews, I mean, the good religious, the people who knew the law, the people who had the knowledge of good and evil, the people who think they don't need mercy for they've used the law to make themselves in God's image. To them, Jesus says, please, 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 stop talking about me. Don't talk about me. Don't tell. At least not yet. Have you ever had people speak for you? You know, when I was the pastor of a really big church and we had a, a whole bunch of staff, every now and then one of the staff would say something like this to me. Hey, Peter, I think it would be a really neat idea if we had the little children lead the whole worship service. What do you think? And I would say something like, well, I would prefer that the little children, you know, led like part of the worship service. And then that staff person would talk to one of the parents and say, you know, Peter doesn't like children leading worship. And then the parent would talk to another parent and say, you know, Peter's made a law that children can't lead. Peter doesn't like children. (laughs) And so I made a law. I made a law and I said to the staff people, some like 30, some 40 at that time, I said, look, nobody can use my name to tell people to do anything or to not do anything. You know, I think God uh, did a similar kind of thing. I think that's why he said, you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. You know, I don't think that has anything to do with cuss words and everything to do with religious people using God's name for their own vain purposes. Everything to do with religious people using God's name while not having a clue as to what it means. So Peter says, Jesus, You're the Christ, the the son of the living God. And Jesus says, bingo, right. But guys, please, 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 don't tell anyone. 
I wonder if Jesus would ever say that to us. As if we knew that he was the Messiah, but we really just didn't have a clue as to what that meant. As if we didn't have a clue as to what the name Jesus meant. So why did Jesus strictly charge his disciples to not go tell it on the mountain? Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Next, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. For the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Literally, he said, mercy to you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance, a scandal on to me, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. Holy crap. In four verses, Jesus, well, in four verses, Peter went from being the Pope to Satan. I mean, that's pretty weird, isn't it? What just happened? Well, I think this gives us a clue as to why Jesus didn't want Peter to tell. Peter knew that Jesus was Messiah, but he didn't know what Messiah meant. And not only was he wrong about what Messiah meant, he was satanic. I mean, so maybe we just shouldn't be so quick with our, with our bumper stickers and our t-shirts and our evangelism programs. Maybe we shouldn't be so quick to go tell it on the mountain because when we say the Christ is born, we don't really even know what the Christ means. When Christ is born, we think something like this is born. Unto this world, a child is born. to arrest you. I know. And crucify you. This is supposed to happen. What are you? A glutton for punishment? Now, come witness the miracle. Brothers, my time with you is almost over. 
for now. Let us eat. Eat this. You just don't get it, do you? You have been targeted for termination. I've already told you. I'm supposed to die for the sins of mankind. Program to protect you. Stop! Stop killing Judas! But he's going to betray you. I know. Look, look, I've got a lot on my mind right now, and you're really starting to stress me out, okay? Okay? Watch this fire at 10 o'clock. This Christmas, the meat shall inherit the action. Don't worry, he'll be back. What? <laughs> I really think that's my all-time favorite video. Not just because it's funny, but because it reveals our psyche, doesn't it? It reveals the way that we think. Most folks think that Jesus is coming back the way the Terminator is coming back, and since he didn't terminate his enemies the first time around, he's gonna terminate them the second time around, and maybe he will. But scripture says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So maybe we don't understand how the Messiah judges the world, storms the gates of hell, and terminates evil. Which means we modern American Christians may be just like Peter. So when we speak about Jesus, we may be doing the work of Satan for him because we have believed his lies, and even though we say the name of Jesus, we perpetuate the evil one's lies. And what is Satan's lie? What is the lie that Peter has believed? Well, well, Jesus says the Messiah must suffer. The verb is pasco, from where we get our English word passion. Jesus says that he, the Son of Man, Son of God, must suffer many things. And, and Peter says, Peter says to Jesus, mercy on you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. In other words, God loves you, Jesus. He would never let you suffer. Does that sound kind of familiar? Kind of like if you, if, if you confess Jesus and you join our group, well, God will bless you. He'll make you healthy and wealthy and he won't let you suffer. I mean, where have we heard something like that? Or maybe something like this. Hey, if you're the son of God, turn stones, to, you're, you're hung, turn these stones into bread. Why suffer hunger? Feed yourself, feed the world. Get relevant and grow your church. Hey, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple, you know, where everyone can see and the angels can catch you and, and bear you. Why suffer humiliation? Impress them with spectacle and build your church. Hey, if you're the Messiah, if you're, if you're the king, do it my way, and I'll give you Rome. 
I'll give you Syria. I'll give you Jerusalem. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Why suffer death at the hand of your enemy? Instead, accuse your enemy. Slander your enemy. Enslave your enemy. Force your enemy to join your kingdom or die. Build your church with relevance, spectacle, and power. That sounds familiar. Because it's the voice of the evil one tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And please understand, bread is good. Miracles are good. Sometimes even power uh, is good. But Jesus builds his church with something else. In the words of Henry Nouwen, Satan tempts Jesus with relevance, spectacle, and power. In the words of Fyodor Dostoevsky, Satan tempts Jesus with miracle, mystery, and authority. But you see, Jesus builds his kingdom with something else. Jesus hears the voice of Satan coming through Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a scandal on to me. Not the rock, but a stumbling stone. Peter's words are a stumbling stone to Jesus and to all who would follow in the steps of Jesus. Imagine if someone came along and whispered in my son's ear when he was about five years old, hey, why you're Peter Hyatt's son. Hey, buddy, I know your dad. He loves you. He loves you so much that, well, he'll never let you suffer. He would never spank you. He would never take you to the dentist. He would never make you eat your peas. And when you go to the grocery store, whatever you want, it's yours. You name it and claim it and and take it. Why? Because your father loves you. If I heard someone whispering that into the ear of my son, I would just go into a rage and say, you better believe I love my son and everything that I have is his, but don't you ever utter my name in his presence ever, ever, ever again. 70 years ago, American missionaries taught Chinese converts that Jesus would return to terminate his enemies and that seven years before he did that, there would be this great tribulation, but God would rapture his people before the great tribulation for God would not allow his chosen to suffer. When the communists took over and began torturing Christians, many new Chinese converts thought they missed the rapture and therefore missed the Messiah, and the Messiah did not love them, when in fact the Messiah was in them, for he did love them. He was delighting in them, in their faith, hope, and love, in the midst of suffering for his name. You many of the Jews could not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, for they would not believe that the Messiah would suffer or allow them to suffer. The Quran teaches, and you can read this in a few places, it teaches that Jesus was not crucified for God would not allow his chosen one to suffer. Peter believed the lie that the Messiah, the chosen one, would not suffer. Even more, he believed the lie that the Messiah wouldn't suffer for his enemies. 
In verse 21, Jesus told Peter and his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that it was, uh, the Greek implies it was the will of God must that he suffer many things. And Bible scholars point out that many in the New Testament often means all because of the way Aramaic and Greek get translated and work together. And in this case, probably does mean all, for Jesus appears to be referencing Isaiah 53, verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, for it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And St. Peter writes, or St. Paul writes, love bears all things. Love bears all things on a cross. It's there that Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. And who is them? It's us. It's everyone that has made themselves the enemies of God. Satan is that God wouldn't suffer for his enemies, for God doesn't love his enemies, and yet Jesus taught, love your enemies. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Satan's lie is that God wouldn't suffer for his enemies, but only make his enemies suffer. Well, God does make his enemies suffer. And then he reveals that he's suffering in them and with them and for them. He reveals that he is love, and he reveals it through suffering. He suffers all. He suffers you. He allows you to will what he does not will in order that you could see that he is good and freely will what he does will for all eternity. It's how he makes you in his own image. He allows you to make yourself his enemy so he can suffer for you, crying out, Father, forgive. He creates you with grace. Satan tempts you to believe that you create yourself in God's image with the knowledge of good and evil, the law. You know, the Jews had the law. And the law is good, but they were tempted through the law uh, to believe that they made themselves in the image of God and therefore they deserved the Messiah and the Romans and Syrians did not deserve the Messiah. They were tempted to believe that they could make God love them when in fact God who is love made them. See how upside down that is? They were tempted to believe that their choices saved them when in fact their choices damned them and only God's choice could save them. God's choice is Jesus. You know the name Jesus means God is salvation. Last week, Christianity Today ran this fascinating article where they'd done this extensive survey uh, to discover what were evangelical Christians' favorite heresies. So I read that and of course I thought, I need to check this out. Uh, Number one was this, the belief that we seek God first and he responds with grace. That's called Pelagianism. It's the belief that our choice creates God's choice to save. Instead of the belief that God's choice to save creates our choice to be saved. 68% of evangelicals say that we seek God first and he responds with grace. And, And yet that idea was consumed condemned as heresy by three of the great ecumenical church councils, 418, 431, and 529, and most importantly, Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You know, the idea that Jesus ultimately chooses to redeem all 
was never declared a heresy by any of the great church ecumenical councils. And many historians believe it was the dominant view of the church up until about 500 AD in in Rome. And so why do evangelical Christians freak out at the idea that God might choose to save all? Well, if God saves all, then God saves your enemies. Which implies that you may be no better than your enemies. Which means you probably didn't save yourself. And it only makes sense that you would love your enemies. That's a hard one. And I don't think, I'm not talking about loving Satan, for I'm not sure there's anything to love in Satan. I'm not sure that he's a substance so much as an an absence, And, and yet I firmly believe that we're tempted by him, and I also believe that I've heard his lies audibly. I can't tell you the stories here and now, but let me say that when I heard his lies and I knew that they were his lies, I remember being really surprised to discover that they basically had absolutely nothing to do with Harry Potter and everything to do with the idea that Jesus did not suffer for his enemies. In other words, that Jesus did not forgive his enemies. That is that God is not salvation, at least not salvation for all. In other words, God is not Jesus for all. I heard Satan's lies and then I remember being shocked and surprised to realize that they sounded so very familiar. But not because I heard them from Led Zeppelin or Ozzy Osbourne, but because I had heard them from people like Peter. And this Peter. And folks at church. People like me, accusers. You know, that's what Satan means. And, 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 and accuser, or, or devil, Satan, I think adversary, devil, slanderer, a, a, accuser, accusers, well, they, what do they do? They make enemies and, and they keep them. At church, I had heard Jesus didn't die for all, that Jesus didn't suffer for his enemies. And, and his enemies, who are his enemies? Well, his enemies are the people on the other side of the wall. His enemies are the people that haven't chosen him. The people predestined for hell are already in hell. The people on the other side of the gates of Hades. At church, I heard Jesus wouldn't suffer for his enemies. Or if he did suffer for his enemies, his suffering did not redeem his enemies. In other words, his cross did not work. I think that's Satan's favorite lie. Jesus didn't suffer for his enemies and redeem his enemies. And sometimes I've heard this, well, Jesus suffered so that we would not suffer. In other words, Jesus bore a cross so that you would not. Next verse, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, next verse, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, his psyche will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
Well, you see, I think the Messiah not only suffers for his enemies to redeem his enemies, I think he suffers for his enemies to redeem his enemies through us. His body. And so, of course, Satan would lie to Peter and to us saying, don't suffer for your enemies, accuse your enemies, condemn your enemies, overpower your enemies. That's how the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes the way the Terminator comes. The kingdom comes the way the U.S. military comes. The kingdom comes the way ISIS comes. Same psyche. Same way of thinking. Just more power. Verse 26, what shall a man give in return for his soul, for the Son of Man is going to come, he's going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay, give, or reward each person according to what he has done. How does Jesus reward his enemies' deeds? Well, How does Jesus reward your deeds? Jesus teaches the Son of Man will come and each person will be judged according to what he has done. What you do does not earn salvation, but salvation will judge what you have done. The grace of God will devour the chaff. It will burn away evil with unquenchable fire and purify the good like gold is purified in a furnace. So his coming was sweet for some and a terror for others. They may hide in Hades for for a long time, but we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He will repay, reward each person according to what he has done. Verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, death. They will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that means, number one, that Jesus was wrong, or number two, the Bible is inaccurate, Or number three, Jesus has been coming in his kingdom and some people just can't see it. Like maybe something's wrong with their psyche. Like the kingdom really is at hand and we just can't see it. Or maybe it means he comes for each of us individually at death. He said to his disciples in John 14, I will come for you and take you to where I'm going. If you run from him, if you hide from him, you literally run from life and hide in death. And that place is called Hades or hell. But if you surrender to him, you inherit his kingdom. St. Paul tells you what you're rewarded with. You are rewarded with Jesus and all things with him. Matthew 26, 64, standing before the high priest, Jesus says this, from now on, from this point forward, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I think my dad saw Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven just seven years ago, the day he died. And yet it was the day he lived. For he was not trapped by death in the depths of the earth. He he went home. Matthew 28, risen from the dead, Jesus says this, all authority. Now, do the math. All authority means how much authority is left. 
Zero. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Going, therefore, disciple all nations. In other words, because I am absolutely in charge, go love in the way that I have loved you. Suffer for your enemies, and I will redeem your enemies even through you. So yes, Peter. Yes, church. Jesus is the Messiah. But how does the Messiah conquer the gates of hell? We are like living in hell. One day while I was praying, I asked God what he would have me do to be his witness. But he only asked me, will you give me your life? As I prayed, I understood he wanted all of me, and I said yes. If the time came, I was willing to die for Jesus. The next day, while I was praying, I asked God again what he would have me do. This time, he asked me, are you willing to give me your husband's life? It is not easy to be ready to die. My husband and I prayed about this together. We said yes to God. The third day was the most difficult. On this day, God asked me if I was willing to give up my children's lives. The terrorists know who we are and that we share Jesus with Muslims. It is not safe for our family. My husband and I prayed and fasted and together, we agreed. God gave us our precious children. He has the freedom to take them back. When we agreed to put our children on the altar, I knew I had to tell them the truth. I told them that it was possible that men with swords may come through our door, men who didn't know Jesus. They may say bad things to us and try to force us to convert to Islam. But no matter what they say, we should not answer them. We should only tell them that Jesus loves them and that we forgive them. I also told them that as long as God wants us to be safe, we will be safe, that He is in control. Even during the bloodshed, during the killing, he is carrying our future. This is what it means to be a Christian in Syria. We are like... This is what it means to be a Christian. I read on the Voice of the Martyrs website that Leanna and her family were offered asylum in the West, but they prayed and chose to stay in Syria as a witness. We don't know whether they're alive or dead. I've heard that at least a thousand believers have been slaughtered in Syria since this crisis began, but how does the Messiah conquer the gates of hell? Well, I think he does it through you and through me. When we look our enemies in the eye and we say, Jesus loves you and I forgive you. 
You see, I think that is what it is to exercise the power of the keys. I think that's how the church overpowers, literally overpowers the gates of hell. And, and I know it seems horrifying and wrong and even terrifying, but that's because we just haven't heard what Jesus said. The Son of Man will suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day rise. It appears that Peter missed that point. Uh, on the third day rise. He said, lose your life and you will find it. You know, we will all die. Do you know that? Is that you're coming aware of that? We will all die. And most people are already the walking dead. We will all die, but until you die for love, you cannot live. And you can die for love like every day, every minute, and begin to live even now, eternal life now. And dying for love, sacrificial love, is how Jesus builds his church. You know, you can build human institutions, I know this. You can build human institutions with relevant spectacle and power. You can certainly build them through accusations, by, by finding enemies and making scapegoats, by telling some that they're in because others are out. You can build human institutions through lust, pride, and fear, but Jesus builds his church and breaks down the gates of Hades with sacrificial love. Jesus doesn't conquer hell with more hell. He conquers hell by filling all things with love. He's the death of death. He's the condemnation of condemnation. He's the terminator of termination. And until you see Jesus the Messiah crucified for the sins of the whole world, I think he'd say, hey, could you just take off that T-shirt? Would you stop talking about me so much? However, if you know that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, well, I think you can look your grumpy, cantankerous wife right in the eye. You can look your rebellious son right in the eye. You can look an ISIS militant right in the eye. You can look your worst enemy right in the eye and say, Jesus loves you, and I forgive you. And in this way, the Lord Jesus Christ in you, his body, breaks down the gates of hell. You know, we're out of time, and we'll talk about this more next week, but Peter denied knowing Jesus. He denied knowing the Christ. Now, that's amazing, because maybe in a way he really didn't know the Christ. He denied knowing the Christ, and then he saw the Christ dying for the sins of the world. He lost his psyche, and then he found his psyche as the risen Christ said, now, Peter, now feed my sheep. Now preach, now tell. And so Peter preached on Pentecost and Jesus built his church on Peter and it was relevant, it was spectacular, and it was powerful. But the power was not like the power of this world. Peter chose to die for his enemies on a cross outside of Rome and that's how he conquered Rome. And now he's called the Bishop of Rome. And in 1 Peter 4, 6, listen to what he wrote. Okay, this is the Bible. The gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That's Hades. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end, the telos, 
the perfection of all things. He writes, the end of all things is at hand. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the perfection. And he is at hand. He took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Do do you see this? Ingest this and digest this, and then go tell it on the mountain. Over the hill and everywhere that Jesus is the Christ. In his name, believe the gospel and speak the gospel, amen. Dark cup is wine, white cup is juice. They are both the love of God poured out for you. And so Jesus said, love your enemies. And he also said this, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. (laughs) Have you ever wondered why didn't he say enemies? Do you remember what Jesus said to Judas in the garden? Friend. Do what you need to do quickly. So what was Judas? Well, he was the son of perdition and Jesus' friend. The son of perdition will be destroyed and Jesus will redeem his friend. You see, Jesus conquers hell the way he conquered you. He turns his enemies into friends. And when he looks at you, I don't think, that's what confused me about this sermon. As I was saying, I go, well, something's not quite right here. And I think it's because uh, I don't know that God really has enemies the way we have enemies. We make ourselves God's enemy. Every time we sin, that's what we're doing. We're saying, I'm going to be the enemy of love. And God says, yeah, but I call you my friend. His love is extravagant. So believe the gospel and preach the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.